morning, and thank you for, for being here. We started a series last week called Verified, and if you were here last week, I said that most of you probably recognize this blue check mark on the screen behind me. That is the check mark that Twitter uses uh, to verify that an account is the real account of the person that it's representing. So if it's a politician or an actor or a famous businessman, um, if they put a post up and it has their name, but you don't see the little check that's the blue check, then you know that it's not real, that it's someone who is imitating them for whatever reason, uh, putting a post in their name that's not really them. And last week we talked about how in our digital age it's become increasingly hard to know uh, whether emails we get or messages on social media that we receive, whether they're real or not. It, it's sometimes hard to distinguish between a fake and a real. And we said the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. Uh, we live in a culture where the majority of people claim to be Christian, and yet for many of those, it is not a true verified faith. It's a label, it's a heritage, it's just part of their culture, yet they've never really had a faith relationship with Christ. And so in this series, we're talking about how do we know that our faith is the real deal, that it is a genuine faith. And our guide uh, is a little New Testament book called 1 John. So if you've got your Bible with you and you want to turn to 1 John, um, it's in your New Testament. It's towards the end, right after 2 Peter, right before 2 John. Uh, you'll find that book. And just to set this up, if you missed last week, uh, John was an apostle of Jesus. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of John. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, John became, later in his life, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And at a certain point while he was pastoring this church, there was um, a heresy that invaded that part of the world called Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And so these teachers began to go around to various churches, and they claimed that they had acquired this special knowledge. They had acquired this unique knowledge about God. And central to their claim was that the material world is evil, but the spiritual world is good. And so they said that our bodies are trapped in the physical world, which is evil, but essentially our souls are good, and the goal is to be released from the physical, which is evil. Now, there were many different strains of Gnosticism. It came from sort of a collection of teachings, some from Judaism, some uh, from pagan religions, some from Greek philosophy, especially the teachings of Plato. Uh, there was one particular strain that, uh, that John addresses in his letter called docetism. Docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or appear. And docetists said that since the physical world is evil, there is no way that Jesus came into an actual physical body. That when Jesus walked on this earth for roughly 33 years, that he just appeared to be in a human body. But in actuality, he was not. That he was just a spirit, but people thought that he was an actual human body. So John addresses Gnostics in general, and specifically those who had bought into docetism in this particular letter. So if you've got your Bible, it's 1 John 1. Uh, we'll begin with the very first verse of 1 John. And here is what John writes. 
That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So right out of the gate here, John addresses this false teaching called docetism. And John says, I was with Jesus. I touched Him. He was really 100% human in the flesh. He did not just appear to be man. He was actually man. Then John says, because there were other strains that said, well, yeah, he was just a man and he was just a prophet, a great man, but really no different than any of us. He says, no, but he was God's son and with God in the beginning, that he was and is eternal. Here's what John is saying in the opening of this letter. That when Jesus came, he was 100% God and 100% man. And if that just blew your mind, welcome to the club. It's a little bit hard for us to get, and yet that's exactly what Scripture teaches. That Jesus came in the flesh, 100% man, and yet he was and is 100% God. This is where a lot of people get, get, um, get hung up on Christianity. Um, They are fine with with a general sense of God and a general sense of Jesus, but when you get into the particulars, they have trouble. Uh, Pastor and author John Piper has a great quote on this. It's a little bit long, but he really gets at the heart of the issue. It says, many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains merely a spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man and in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sin of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. I don't think it is so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the Incarnation. The stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And the particularity of his work and word flow out into history in the form of a particular inspired book written in the particular languages of Greek and Hebrew that claims a universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. This is the stumbling block of the Incarnation. When God becomes a man, He strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one particular Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and must come to Him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Most people do not have a problem intellectually with the idea of God becoming man and living among us and dying for our sins on the cross. They have an objection practically to what that means for their lives. 
And they understand that if Jesus is exactly who he says he was, if Jesus really is the Son of God and died on the cross, that means that we can no longer be God. That we can no longer save ourselves. That we can no longer be the source of our own morality. That we have to die to ourselves. And that is the only way to truly find life. So what does this look like in the life of a verified Christian? If you've got your message map uh, with you, this is on there. Let's talk about in this passage what John says the Christian's relationship with sin should be like. The first thing he says is this, that for the verified Christian in sin, the first thing is not to get cozy with it. Do not get too comfortable with sin in your life. Here's what John wrote. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. Here is why John wrote these words. The Gnostics were teaching that they could do whatever they wanted to do in their physical bodies, especially in the way of sexual immorality, and still spiritually have a connection with God. They said, I can do whatever I want to with my body, but because it is separate from my spirit, I can still have intimacy with God in my spirit. John here says, no, you can't do that. That sin in the body affects our relationship with God. And here John says, if you continue in habitual, unrepentant sin, that it will affect your fellowship with God. Because God is light, in Him there is no darkness at all. If you walk in darkness, then you cannot have fellowship with God. Now notice what he does not say. He does not say that it breaks your relationship. If you are a follower of Christ, it does not break your relationship with God. If you're truly a verified Christian, you have the love of God 100% regardless of what you do. I remember several years ago when my oldest son told his first really big lie to me. Really, This was not just a, an average lie. It was a premeditated lie. It was a lie in the first degree. I mean, it was bad. And it was the first time he had done it with me, and it shocked me when I caught him in this lie. And for a period of time, we did not have fellowship. He was punished. He was in his room. We couldn't just hang out. I mean, there was fellowship broken because of his sin. Now, our relationship never changed. I still loved him just as much as if he had not lied because he is my son. But our fellowship was broken. This is what happens when we continue in sin. I remember when I was in college... I read a couple of books on grace and for the first time in my life really began to understand the grace of God and the depths of God's grace and how it's nothing that we can do. It's all about God's grace. And it was the most freeing thing to uncover those truths and to understand just how much God has given to us and how it's all about grace. However, I also made the logical, in my mind, leap from there that if it's all about grace, then I can pretty much do what I want, right? Because God will forgive me. Come on, you've done that, right? You've said, hey, if it's all about grace, I can just do this thing I want to do, and then I can ask for forgiveness later. Here's what John says. When you do that, you break fellowship with God, 
And when you continue in unrepentant sin, then you do not have this intimacy with God. And so if you're going through life and you're thinking, how come nothing's working out? Why is it that God's not answering my prayers? Why is it that I just, every time I pray, it feels like it just hits the ceiling and bounces right back? If you're continuing in habitual sin, it may be that you have broken fellowship with God. And the first step for you is to confess this sin and get right with God. Okay, that's number one. The second thing is for the verified Christian, not only don't get cozy with it, but secondly, don't minimize it. Do not minimize your sin. Here's here's what John wrote. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Here's what John was saying to those Gnostic teachers. You are saying that you are without sin because in your spirit you've not committed any sins, even though you've committed sins in your body. And he's saying, you are lying. You are deceiving yourself. These Gnostic teachers weren't saying that there was no sin. They were just saying that what they were doing wasn't sin. They had essentially determined in their own teachings what was right and what was wrong. And that they were without sin because they had made a list of morals. And they were keeping their list so they were without sin. Sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? Don't you, wouldn't you like to do that? I would love to create my own list of what is right and wrong and then live by that. I would have no problem avoiding sin. In fact, I did exactly that. So if I'm making a list of sins, here's what's on my list of sins. Number one, watching the Real Housewives of any city, any episode... Any city, anywhere, the very few times I have flipped channels and come across that show, I can't stand it for more than about 15 seconds, and I'm pretty sure I lose IQ points as that show runs. So, absolutely, if you watch any of those shows, you've committed a sin in my book. Number two, wearing skinny jeans. (laughs) And here's why. I can't pull it off, so if I just make it a sin, no one else is allowed to do it either, right? Putting celery in chicken salad. I have no idea why some people want to ruin perfectly good chicken salad with the vile weed called celery. Why would you do that? And then you try to hide it in soups too. You can't cook it and get away with it. I know it's, it's, it's there. Certainly put it in chicken salad. That's a sin in my book. Getting a tattoo. And the reason I say this is I just don't like pain, and I don't have tattoos. And so if I can judge other people who do have tattoos, then i just like to judge you for your sin. So on my list, getting a tattoo is a sin. Um, finally, using the word literally when you actually mean figuratively is definitely a sin. Don't come to me and say, that movie was so scary, I literally came out of my skin. No, you didn't. And if you did, I'm definitely avoiding that movie. We would all love to do that, right? To take what we struggle with and put it in the not a sin category and those things that we don't like or we don't have a problem with and put those in the sin categories, then we can judge everybody else and we can feel self-righteous. It doesn't work that way. Before we 
Katie and I came to Northway. We were living in Rome, serving as missionaries there. And I remember we arrived there just a few weeks before Christmas. And maybe 10 days or so before Christmas, we went out and we were still trying to, to feel our way around the city and figure out where everything was. And we had gone out one evening and somehow we ended up on the Via Candati. If you've ever been to Rome, the Via Candati is the Rodeo Drive of that city. All the high-end stores, the really expensive stores, are on the Via Candati. We started walking down those streets, and we just looked and said, we can't afford any of these stores. We can't even afford to go into any of these stores. And the further we got into, um, into that area, the more crowded it became. I mean, we couldn't afford to go into any of those stores, but evidently other people could. Tourists and uh, locals from Rome, they were all there doing their Christmas shopping, and it became more and more crowded to the point that I thought, I've never been to Mardi Gras, but this is what Mardi Gras must feel like. I mean, it was just absolutely packed. And I said, we've got to get out of here. I can't, I can't handle this. It's just way too crowded. The sidewalks, the streets. I said, let's go home. And Katie said, do you know how to get home? I said, yeah, I think I do. It is left. Are you sure? Yes, it's that direction. I just know it's that direction. So we went down an alley, went down another street, went down another street, and I said, it's that way. Keep going that way. If we just keep walking this way, we'll get to a familiar street. I just know, I can feel it. It is that way. It was after midnight before we got home. I finally realized that I was way off, that what I thought and what I felt was right was not right at all. Our internal moral compasses will lead us astray. Just like I needed a map or a compass in Rome to get me in the right direction, we need something that is outside of us to lead us down the right path morally. If we try to use our internal feelings, our own internal guide, what feels right for us, it will lead us astray. So, first thing, don't get cozy with it. Don't minimize it. And finally, the third thing is don't ignore it. Look at what John writes in verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also the sins of the world. For the verified Christian, when we sin, and we will sin, when we blow it, our reaction should be, I'm confessing this to God. I'm confessing this to the Father, and then here is the promise that John gives. When we confess our sin to God, God will then purify us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our fellowship with God is restored through Jesus Christ. And he says this, that when we sin and we confess it to God, what we have is an advocate with the Father. Who is that advocate? It is Jesus Christ. That word advocate is very similar to our modern-day term attorney or lawyer. And this is an individual that fights on our behalf. Uh, Tim Keller frames it this way. He says, in course, you disappear into your advocate. If you stammer but your lawyer is eloquent, 
What do you look like in court? Eloquent. If you are ignorant, but your lawyer is brilliant, what do you look like in court? Brilliant. In some cases, you may not be required to speak or even to appear personally in court. Your attorney appears in your place as your substitute. So what do you look like in court? You look like whatever your advocate looks like. If your advocate wins, you win. If your advocate loses, you lose. In short, you're lost in your advocate. You are in your advocate. And if you are in Christ, let me add, you win every single time. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father who goes to the Father on our behalf and says, this individual, this person, this man, this woman is sinless before you because they are in me and I have paid for their sin. Last week, I talked to you about progressive Christianity. If you missed last week, go and watch that sermon Um, It'll help you get a little bit more of an understanding of what I'm talking about. This week, a friend of mine sent me a video of a progressive pastor explaining the verse John 3.16. What is undoubtedly the most famous verse in in Christendom, John 3.16. Let me put it on the screen just to remind you of what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Traditional Christians have interpreted the verse this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Why have we interpreted the verse that way? Because that's what it says. So we have taught that this means that God gave Jesus, and belief in Jesus is the way to eternal life. The pastor that I watched this past week said, that is not what Jesus is talking about at all. I want you to read what he wrote. Jesus is not referring to himself. Son of God and only begotten Son are terms for the Christ. The Christ existed billions of years before Jesus of Nazareth was even born. When God birthed everything into existence and said, let there be light... There was the Christ. The divine DNA was infused into all of creation. God so loved the world that God gave us of its very nature its own DNA. I'm really not sure what he meant by that statement. It's kind of a word salad here and a lot of words that sort of confuse you, but it does get more clear. Jesus was a man from Nazareth who lived more than 2,000 years ago, and during his lifetime, he had an awakening that he and God were not two, but one. So this pastor says that Jesus did not come as the Christ. He was not the Son of God. He was just like me and you. He just had this awakening to God. And because of this, Jesus was able to fully manifest the Christ, this divine DNA within him. And he made it his mission to go out into the world and teach others that they too could experience this oneness with God. And he said, follow the way. What was the way? the way of forgiveness, the way of serving, the way of unconditional love. Because Jesus knew that when you live from that way, you stop listening to the voice of the ego, the voice of the small self, the voice of darkness, and you start to awaken more and more to the light, to your true self, to your divine self, to your Christ self. So Jesus didn't say that he was the only one. He stood in front of crowds and said, you 
are sons and daughters of God. You are the light of the world. And all the things I have done, you can do. And quoting from Psalm 82, Jesus said, You are all sons and daughters of the Most High. You are all God's. Do you believe Him? If you really believe that, that you are a child of God, that you are the light, that you are God's, here's the key, then you experience salvation. This pastor took scriptures and twisted them to say that you and I are no different than Jesus. That you and I are Christ, just like Jesus. And the way of salvation is looking within, finding the light that is within, then living that out, and you too can experience salvation. Hey, it sounds good. I like that. I get to be my own God. I get to make the rules. I get to make my own decisions. It sounds great. The only issue with it is that it's a lie. That is just not true. It's about five years ago that I went to see the dermatologist, and there I met with Chad Perry, who's a friend of mine, who he and his family are in this church. Had a suspicious spot, and so he took a sample and said, I'll get back with you in a couple of days. He sent it off to the lab. A couple of days later, he came and met with me, and we sat down together, and he said, I'm sorry, it's melanoma, and you're going to have to have surgery to have this removed. Now, I am sure that he sweated having that conversation. In fact, he told me he went back to the lab and said, I want you to check this again before I go and tell this guy that he is going to, going to have to go through this procedure that he has cancer. And I'm sure somewhere deep in his mind, he thought, you know, I really wish I didn't have to have this conversation. I really wish I could tell him that everything's fine, that there's nothing wrong, that he is okay, that he does not have cancer. Let me ask you this. What would have been more loving for him to lie to me and to say, hey, you're great. I just want you to feel good about yourself. You're okay. You don't have cancer. And then let this cancer grow and potentially kill me. Or to tell me the truth. You have cancer. But I have the answer. I have the solution. It's surgery. And if you will just follow this path, he will be okay. Which is more loving there? The Bible is very clear that you and I have a cancer, and it's called sin. And we cannot solve this on our own. We can never be good enough. We can never be righteous enough. We cannot find it within. We cannot be religious enough. We cannot do enough to save ourselves. But God, in His love, has given us a solution to our cancer. And in His love, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that you and I can have forgiveness of sin and finally be free from that cancer. Is that something that you have done? Have you made that decision to follow Christ? Is it more than just a label? Is it more than just part of your tradition? Is it more than just your culture? Is it more than just something that your family has done? Is it more than just part of who you are? Is it the center of your life? Have you truly committed your life to Christ? If not, then today is the day for salvation. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting on? Quit chasing after silly things in life. Life is way too short. Quit running after things that will ultimately leave you empty and leave you still lost in your sin. 
Today is the day of salvation. If that is you, if you have never made this commitment, I want to pray for you right now. And then when I'm done praying, I want you to listen. I've got a few further instructions for you. Let's pray. Father, I I lift up those who right now, God, that you're speaking to their hearts. Um, Right now, you're whispering to their souls that they need to make things right with you today. God, thank you so much that, that salvation is something that you give us, that it's not something we could ever create on our own. But God, in your love, that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And God, we, we are just overwhelmed by your love. And thank you so much for it. And so God, I pray if there's anyone in here today who has never experienced that love, that today would be the day that they are forever and eternally changed because of Jesus Christ. It's His name I pray. Amen. Okay, listen to me for just a second. If God is speaking to you right now, do not leave this place today without having made the most important decision you will ever make in your life. I promise you, life is way, way too short to just ignore the Spirit of God speaking to your heart right now. I, I, I turned 49 last week. I hate to confess that to you because I know you think I don't look a day over 35, but I turned 49 last week. And people call me middle-aged, but that's not true. I know very few people who live to 98. Um, I'm I'm beyond middle age, and the reality has hit me that I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning. Life is short. Are you really going to waste it on things that ultimately don't matter? Commit your life to Christ. Give your life to Christ. Chase Him with everything that's in you.